American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given at the Graduate Center. So, um, this morning I'm gonna, uh, we're going to uh, wander into uh, the Gilded Age. Um, and um, you'll be shocked to know that uh, what I'll be focusing on are popular illustrations, some from the pictorial <laughs> press, um, and, uh, but from also uh, uh, popular illustration in general, humor publications, and, and, and so on. Um, um, I'm hopefully, as we progress along, I think we'll, uh, we'll see the connections between what we've seen before and, of course, uh, the, the years following uh, the Civil War. But in many ways, it's, it, it is, of course, and certainly in the sort of, uh, I guess you could say, up, up until relatively recent times, been presented as an era, you know, of astounding growth and expansion and enterprise in all, you know, in positive terms. Although I seem to remember that Stephen Ambrose, uh, you know, the, uh, the historian of war, or as he was known as Stephen Ambrose, Inc., <laughs> because he, he was incorporated. Um, just before he died, had reflected and decided that the robber barons were good. So, you know, just goes to show revision gets revised itself all the time. Anyhow, it was also a, persist, a period of persistent political, social, and economic crisis. So it was supposedly, obviously, a, a resolution of the big crisis uh, in the nation, civil war. Uh, but it was a succession of crises and um, new seminal and unresolved issues gripped the nation um, that will only really begin to be resolved, uh, if ever completely resolved, as we know today, in the progressive era. Um, I think it's important to set the context to state, as, as indicated by this first image, um, which is from Harper's Weekly, um, uh, a very typical, by the way, uh, post-Civil War image, which was not only the bifurcation between the poor and the affluent, but also particularly around Christmas time was usually the poor uh, in, uh, you know, in straightened circumstances and, and, uh, and in some cases, the, you know, sort of the, uh, the affluent ignoring it. But the point about this is that it's worth remembering that half of the years between 1865 and 1900 were years of economic crisis. Uh, we have 1873 to 1877, 1882 to 1885, 1893 to 1897. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary. Um, and for what it's worth, uh, it, the, that first depression, which we'll get into in, in 1873, is the longest period of economic stagnation in American history up to that time, 65 months of uh, economic stagnation. Um, so... Uh, having said that, the, um, the, the whole notion of economic expansion and, um, uh, and of course, uh, labor were, not, were circumstances largely not reflected in the fine art of the euro. I'm going to make a, a gross generalization here, except obliquely, certainly in terms of the images of workers and, you know, Thomas uh, uh, Anschutz's uh, Iron Workers Noontime, you know, painted in 1880. Um, it is an exceptional industrial scene um, uh, in Wheeling, West Virginia. It's a real nail factory in Wheeling, West Virginia. Um, 
And particularly, um, it has been in the past and in the present viewed as a scene of exhaustion and depletion, but uh, others, particularly recently, have seen it as an homage to the skilled worker, uh, and if anything, an homage to the disappearing skilled worker in, in the face of industrialization. Now, it's also was uh, an, an, an image that was seen more broadly. Um, so, for example, the public saw these paint, paintings such as this in prints in the pictorial press. This was in, uh, reproduced in Harper's Weekly four years later in 1884. And they also saw it, by the way, in the form of advertising. So if you needed to sell soap, for example, an ivory soap uh, um, ad that, that appeared around that time as well, uh, it obviously quoted the painting. Now, of course, you always wonder if the people would know that as quoting a painting or, for that matter, um, simply thinking that the painting copied the, the ad. <laughs> so anyhow, we'll... Um, now, in terms of, and I guess this is the, the particularly gen general statement, um, the... The fine art that, of course, and, and uh, Sarah had uh, had briefly mentioned uh, landscapes, uh, you know, yesterday. That um, there, there's an indication, I guess you could say, uh, at least from my perspective, of uh, of the expansion and industrial, and certainly the the question of development and industrialization in uh, post Civil War landscape painting, as for example, you know, Albert Bierstadt's Western Landscape. Um, uh, in many ways, I think, denying the impact of geographic expansion and the thrust of settlement uh, and industry westward, as it also obviously was celebrating the bounty to be exploited, um, if you know, not you know, explicitly. Now, that's not the same in terms of the popular, uh, popular news and illustration, which uh, is, has no ambivalence when it comes to for example, uh, the, perhaps the epitome of expansion of this period of time, which of course is the building of the railroad. This is uh, based on a photograph, uh, the, um, the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad at Promontory Point, uh, Utah, uh, in 1869. It was published in Harper's Weekly, and this image is, of course, been, you know, was published ad nauseum. Um, and of course, just parenthetically, as you know, has been you know more recently discussed, uh, the Chinese workers are of course excluded. Speaking of exclusions, which we we'll see a lot of over the course of the morning, uh, the Chinese workers, of course, were not included either in the illustration or, for that matter, in the um, in the photograph um, of the time. And and the, the the expansion of the railroad. I mean, in this case, this is a, a picture of the building of the railroad on the Great Plains. Again, in Harper's Weekly. In 1875, this is a standard image that runs throughout, you know, the next you know, 30 years of, of pictorial news. Um, now, the uh, Centennial Exposition of 1876 uh, perhaps was the most public manifestation of the celebration of industry and innovation, and for that matter, you know, capital. Um, and the pictorial press was preoccupied with Centennial for six months. Um, I should add just parenthetically that Frank Leslie was so preoccupied, he actually was one of the commissioners of, of the Centennial, that he had this great scheme to create these expensive souvenir books. They completely crashed as a scheme, and he went bankrupt on the basis uh, of that. So um, the, the Centennial was not so good for, for Frank Leslie. Um, 
But the centennial, uh, you know, opened in Philadelphia on May 10th, 1876. Opened for six months. Six, it was open six days a week for 50 cents, not an inexpensive entry fee. Uh, and more than 10 million visitors uh, visited the 450 acres of the fairs um, in, in, the Philadelphia, in Philadelphia's Fairmont Park. Uh, the centerpiece was this uh, extremely impressive piece of machinery, the Corliss engine, 1,400 horsepower, had had enough power to power the, the whole fair. Um, the, um, there were five massive central exhibition buildings, 24 state buildings, nine foreign government buildings, and an array of pavilions built by U.S. businesses and organizations, so that there was a Singer sewing machine building, shoe and leather building, Bible Pavilion, Centennial National Bank, and the Burial Casket Building. I thought that was an interesting add, add on. Uh, I think everybody here, except for me, and I should say perhaps Sarah remembers the, eight, the 1965, uh, which was really uh, World's Fair in New York City, which is the last time you really saw the, the commercial aspects of the, these fairs where you, know, you, you actually had, most of these corporations were still uh, had not gone under yet, and they uh, and they all had the, this. This was the tradition, of course, of the of the um, of not simply the centennials, but the world's fairs as well. Now, the main attractions were um, the main hall, uh, which is uh, what this is a picture of, and machinery hall devoted to industry and technology, including buildings, including the buildings themselves, because they were you know mass. Um, uh, structures of glasswork and latticework and iron trusses and columns. And in fact, at least it, was, it has been claimed that the main hall at the time was the largest building in the world. Uh, it would be superseded so, uh, shortly, but it was, you know, the spectacles were in the buildings themselves. And of course, innovation was another aspect of, of, uh, of the fair. Visitors got to try out the new, improved Edison Telegraph, which were many messages on one wire for 50 cents. So that's an additional, just keep computing the figures. Uh, and you could write a letter and send it home on the new Remington Arms typewriter and see a demonstration as in here of Alexander Graham Bell's curious new telephone, which the New York Tribune, among others, asked of. They said, of what possible use is such an invention? <laughs> but while the centennial indicated the, the country's bounty and prosperity, it also revealed you know, this flip side, which was exclusion. Um, now, first of all, as I mentioned before, the fee uh, excluded, the, 1876, of course, was in the middle of that depression, which I'd already mentioned. Uh, so that already excluded uh, most working families at this period of time. Uh, and of course, it was not open on Sunday, which was the only day that, in fact, uh, most uh, um, working people uh, for quite some time was you know the day their day off, um, so that's you know that's one form of exclusion, uh, and it certainly representationally, uh, it was unequal in in terms of the African Americans. Thank you. The um, you know only eleven years after the Civil War. Now uh, Rachel uh, Rachel Hooper uh, can certainly enlighten us uh, as she was enlightening me yesterday about uh, the how much. African Americans were included in terms of working in the fair, um, but certainly, if we you know if we look at you know some situations and particularly in terms of representation, we can see 
an indication of the exclusion that was already taking place politically in, in the political realm. Well, there was, in terms of representation, there was the inclusion of Edmonia Lewis's death of Cleopatra, Edmonia Lewis being an African-American sculptor. Um, and that was unveiled at the centennial. And then, um, but then at the same time, African-American presence, was, presence tended to be in the popular press depicted in dismissive and you know, comical, in quotation marks, terms, such as this uh, image called the visit of the small breed family uh, uh, to the centennial uh, done by Saul Ettinge, who was a, a standard, uh, he had been a, a Leslie's uh, uh, illustrator and then he became a, a worked for Harper's Weekly. But it was also part of a series, which we'll see very familiarly, in this case was called Blackville. These would be regular sort of African-Americans, sort of Southern rubes, uh, you know, go, going to the fair. And the rubes going to world's fairs, let alone the centennial, is a sort of standard item as it is. Um, but there's, you know, a, a quality here, of course, of, you know, naivete and buffoonishness and, of course, overdressed and, and yeah, at the same time in tatters. Um, but at the same time, uh, there is uh, this um, this statue, uh, which is by was by the Austrian Italian sculptor Francesco Pesicar, which was in the Memorial Hall, not in an American hall, but part of the. I can't remember exactly it was the Austrian or the uh, or the Italian um, exhibit, um, but um, it's notable in a number of ways. Um, the uh, the statue was exoriated by uh, most critics at the time. Rachel and I had an interesting discussion about how bad or good the statue was, but it was mm -hmm. utterly sort of not simply dismissed but attacked. If I remember correctly, William Dean Howells, for example, in one in one criticism, uh, said that it begged to be uh, put back in chains. Mm -hmm. Um, but having said that, it, this, this illustration in Frank Leslie's is the only illustration that I've seen of African-American visitors to the fair. And it was a very popular attraction for African-American visitors. Now, of course, this is interesting in a, in a number of ways. Uh, I should say it was published in Frank Leslie's and not commented all. In a, it was simply shown. The picture was simply shown. But, I mean, this is, of course, the range of African-Americans from, uh, you know, somewhat affluent, probably Philadelphia uh, residents uh, to, you know, older, older, perhaps, you know, formerly slaves, you can see in the background, um, and young, you know, young children as well. Um, and, uh, and so it's an unusual image in and of itself, not only of the fair, but I think this notion of, you know, uh, participation. Now, at the same time, of course, the, the statue and representation had its detractors as well, including in a lot of guides. Uh, this is one that was um, uh, in a guide uh, called, called, you know, going to the centennial. And of course, it not only makes fun of, um, of the statue, but at the same time, um, I would say lampoons is probably too generous a term, uh, the, the wealthy African-American visitors and in a way that we've seen going all the way back to Edward Clay's, you know, Life in Philadelphia, speaking of Philadelphia, the series of prints done from the 1830s forward, which was a direct attack on uh, a rising uh, affluent black population in Philadelphia. It was always about overdressing, uh, you know, having no taste and, and so on. It's a, it is a sort of standard, you know, racist trope. And in many ways, of course, um, as we sort of discussed last week, particularly with um, Maury McGinnis, um, the 
the racist image is really a, originally a product in the North and then, you know, migrates South, ironically enough. Well, maybe it's not ironic. <laughs> Anyhow, um, like coverage of the centennial, the pictorial press energetically covered uh, the resplendent homes and glamorous pastimes of the wealthy from mansions and summer retreats, regattas, races, uh, parties, and balls. And in this case, this is a charity ball at the Metropolitan Opera. Actually, we probably see pictures like this to this day. <laughs> but there's a tendency, I think, to overplay uh, you know, the Gilded Age uh, and its representation as being always a pictorial celebration of wealth. Um, so that uh, for the public, they, the, also, the public also received regular news and views of disasters. Um, and alternate, so alternating with glamour and triumphant industry was a persistent vision of the lack of accountability of, on the part of Gilded Age businesses, especially of the railroads. Railroad accidents, I wouldn't say every week, but quite often, are a subject. In this case, this is for what it's worth, the, um, the infamous um, collapse of the bridge over Ohio's Ashtabula, probably pronouncing it wrong, river, uh, when it collapsed in, in December 1876. 83 people died and 60 more were injured after the train crossing the bridge plunged into the river and caught fire. Now, the frequency and escalation of railroad accidents and general failure of the companies to ensure uh, passenger safety were persistent issues during the second half of the 19th century. Equally persistent were pictures of industrial accidents, most commonly coal mine disasters, which were the subject of special supplements. Another feature of uh, the weekly pictorial uh, press was additional images when there was a particularly big item. You know, Chicago Fire is a good example where, or, or for that matter, as we'll discuss later, uh, certain big strikes um, but uh, so these supplements will be published with more pictures of, of the disasters. This one is uh, of, um, and it's particularly interesting because it is an image of white and black miners in, um, in, uh, in Virginia, in the Midlothian coal mine, where there was a fatal explosion there in uh, February uh, 1882. Um, and it's, it's striking for, among other things, uh, as I said, showing uh, an integrated uh, workforce, uh, which was true in mining in, uh, in, in uh, Virginia, and for that matter, West Virginia, uh, in the 1880s. Um, it also, for what it's worth, was done by a, uh, a, a man named uh, F.C. Burroughs, who, uh, as I recall, is very likely somebody who was on the spot. In other words, not a professional illustrator, but the original sketch may have been come from somebody in the location. So, uh, so the Im image is very likely not so much emblematic, but certainly observational. And it, you know, again, it's quite striking in in, in its you know interracial uh, you know presentation. On the other hand. Uh, a lot of this material, particularly around industrial accident, accidents, hit the sensational press. This would be uh, more directed toward men publications such as the National Police Gazette, The Day's Doings, which were, I, I mentioned before, which was owned by Frank Leslie. Um, in this case, uh, this was called Caught in the Shafting, uh, which was a typical image, uh, always a woman, of course, uh, always, you know, um, Usually more revealing in terms of its representation, you know, in terms of its presentation. Uh, you know, there, so there's titillation intertwined with the horror of an industrial accident. 
On the other hand, um, there was also most prominently of all uh, images of the disaster of panic and depression. Uh, in this case, it's the, uh, it is the closing of the doors of the stock exchange on, on, its, on its members on Saturday, September 20th. Uh, this is in October 1873. This is with the, the Panic of 1873. And in this case, of course, we see a familiar riot, except in this case, the rioters have top hats, <laughs> coattails, and are, are dressed formally, which I think would have been quite striking for the um, contemporary viewers. So uh, this brings us, of course, to what I'd raised before, the Panic of 1873, uh, and uh, the, the longest at that time depression in U.S. history. Uh, it, it was unprecedented, and um, and after a certain amount of reluctance, uh, the popular press began covering the hardship. There was a period of time when they avoided it, but then they started. Uh, it was in front of everybody's eyes in the nation. Of course, this is a period of time when uh, a quarter of most of the major cities in the United States people are unemployed. So this was not something that that could be hidden. Uh, in fact, so the so images such as this one, which is called uh, Waiting for the Second Table, inmates of the poorhouse on Randall's Island, Randall's Island is right nearby here, uh, in the East River at New York City, forming in line for dinner. So in 1875, this was uh, February 1875. Um, now, having said that, uh, to our eyes, this is an image of uh, sympathy. But to ensure, or at least to attempt to reinforce a, a different image, or certainly the image that I think a lot of viewers would have had at the time, uh, the argument was made by, in this case, Frank Leslie's, about st that the causes of want were still self-induced, put in, in 19th century eyes. And I'll read you a brief quote here because um, it completely changes the character of what we're seeing here, which was, okay, to witness this anxiously a waiting crowd, waiting for, fill, for, or waiting for the first table to be served, is a subject full of interest to the student of human nature and one replete with thought to the humanitarian. Here are gathered the wrecks of ill-spent lives, the child of misfortune, and too often the victim of knavery, men who started life with bright prospects and high resolves, men who struggled valiantly in the battle of existence but met with disaster after disaster until hope and energy were crushed, men lacking the stamina of purpose who drifted gradually down the stream until they stranded on the shores of Blackwell's Island, men once the center of a rollicking coterie who quaffed their wine and cracked their jokes heedless of the brink of destruction, the bark of pleasure was carrying them down, Men, they're not done yet, men <laughs> whose lives were blasted by the luring smiles of faithless women, men whose overconfidence in professed friends wrought their ruin, and men belonging to the ever-filled army of shiftless, purposeless, reckless, and unfortunate human beings, all are to be found there. So if you had any sympathy, it's <laughs> been drained at this point. And in the spirit of laissez-faire, um, which of course did not, oops, which did not apply to the railroad, you know, railroad subsidies. Um, they heralded, on the other hand, as time went on, voluntary charities such as this Delmonico's soap, soup kitchen, 
this was in Harper's Weekly in May 1874. Delmonico's, of course, was a, a, one of the fam famous restaurants and, and opened a soup, ki soup kitchen. Uh, um, interestingly, as the image sort of suggests, many people sent their children as opposed to coming themselves because of the, you know, the, the, um, the shame that was attached to, you know, having to, to, uh, to ask for some sort of charity. Uh, at the same time, the, the press was hostile to the demands for work relief, such as the coverage of the Tompkins Square riot, you know, which was in January uh, 1874. Tompkins Square at that time uh, be, uh, not being a park, it's a park today uh, down on the Lower East Side. Um, so in this case, uh, the description went as follows, although I think in this case the image and the description really matched together. This was actually in an editorial. And this is in Frank Leslie's. Last week, several thousands of the lower grade of working men of New York City, most of them Germans, Frenchmen, and Poles, finding themselves out of work and hungry with no prospects of immediate employment, determined to parade through the streets in a huge demonstration of numbers as a sign of their sadness and despair. They were incited to enthusiasm by leaders who think radically about the antagonism of labor to capital, and many of them knew no alternative to getting bread by the fairest means, but that of obtaining it by force, even to the shedding of blood. And, and the editorial was in fact called Bread or Blood. Um, uh, this was not a this was not atypical at all as a represent and, and of course an image of you know there are foreign uh, for want of a better phrase physiognomies here as you can see not to mention the the you know the the hirsute you know nature of a lot of although of course beards are sort of popular at this period of time clearly a crowd if the, if in the in the in the day's doings uh, it, it's an equally presented picture I'm afraid this came with <laughs> microphone. Um, but to get an idea, again, uh, of um, in the sensational press, the emphasis was on the scruffy and foreign physiognomies as well. And in this case, of course, as in the last one, pictured um, fleeing police clubs and hooves, uh, affording a, you know, a compelling tableau of stalwart police dispersing an unruly, unruly alien horde. Now, there's a new figure in, uh, in America at this period of time that becomes uh, a, a, a visual trope, and that's the tramp. Ironically, a love of, cor uh, uh, of course, uh, ironically, um, the tramp is uh, a invention of the railroad. Uh, the itinerant poor now can travel around the country in search of work um, via the railroad lines, not of course, comfortably, not getting, you know, in, in the passenger cars, but as, you know, riding the rails is, becomes, of course, a phrase that grows out of, out of this period of time. Um, this is uh, a, a tramp's ablutions, or morning ablutions, uh, uh, an early morning scene in Madison Square. So this is just a few blocks south in Madison Square Park. Um, and, uh, and, and although in this case, there's a, I guess you could say, a curiosity aspect to it, the, not only this particular report, which had additional images, but in general, the tramp is presented as a menace. Uh, this, is an, uh, this is a puck cartoon uh, called Tramp, 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 The Tramp is Coming. Uh, and uh, this, is, this is a little later in the Depression in, in, in 1879, 
Uh, and what's often intertwined with the, the danger of the tramp is a, a, sense, a fear of the sexual violation. Lots of pictures of lonely uh, women, maybe with their children, being confronted by what, you know, in, in our eyes might look like a, you know, a sympathetic image of, of want, but is, is really one of menace. And if you had any doubts about this, uh, a, uh, I would only use the term wonderful here in the sense of, okay, an aha moment here. This was an ad that was in Leslie's um, in, um, this one was in uh, April 1877. Um, an advertisement in the back. There was just like two or three pages of advertisements time in these publications. But as you can see here, it's, you know, uh, among, you know, the, the tramps terror. Uh, my, of course, the quote at the bottom here around the grip is, this is the weapon for police, bankers, and household use. Mm -hmm. uh, and they have 5,000 testimonials in case you needed to have that as well. Um, Josh, yeah. the yes. uh, previous um, cartoon was based on uh, a very popular Civil War song. Yes. Tramp, tramp, tramp. Right. Boys, Boys are marching. marching. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. right. Thanks. So, yet as depression worsened, uh, we do start seeing here um, in in Leslie's in particular a change uh, as members of its broader readership uh, slid into misfortune. There was a drop in the physiognomic signs of um, of difference. Um, and I, I raise this now, and we'll see this in other instances. I, I, th I think I may have mentioned it uh, uh, last week, that um, in, you, you see a disappearance of uh, the somatic signs of foreignness, difference, uh, you know, the um, invidious comparisons that are made, made with those citizens who are, uh, are not designated by facial um, you know, code. Um, you see that disappear in disasters. You see that disappear uh, in, um, in instances where guiltlessness in, in what has happened to, uh, to people is being presented. The Chicago Fire is another good example, example of this. And this is what you begin to see in, during the Depression, a disappearance of a sense of that these peoples, unlike the, what we saw earlier with the soup line, you know, at Blackwell's Island, a, a sense of the um, of their uh, of their not deserving of the as Re Ronald Reagan used to call it, the, the undeserving poor, as opposed to the deserving poor. Um, and in fact, what the the, the description included uh, with this line, it has been noticed this winter. Uh, Leslie has uh, mentioned in its description that among the applicants for lodgings at the police stations, these are people leaving the police, uh, police precinct in the early morning, are an unusually large number uh, representing a class of men and women unaccustomed to such dormitories. So for all intents and purposes, uh, in the case of Frank Leslie's, which had a wider range of readers than Harper's Weekly, which, as Richard West, you know, commented yesterday, was you know the magazine of civilization, uh, and was much more directed toward affluent readers. Uh, Leslie's readers were beginning to become represented in its its images, and I mean, I mean, in my mind, that's one clear indication of a reason why these these. Uh, visual codes begin to change at these type of instances. So the, 
one of the best-selling books in the mid-1880s uh, was uh, uh, called um, Labor, the Problem of Today, uh, edited by George McNeil, for those of you who want to look it up. Uh, and it's actually a terrific sort of social and political history of a snapshot of, of the situation of labor uh, in the middle of the Gilded Age. Um, and what's always been striking to me is that... Um, that argument about being the problem that needs to be confronted today uh, was one that was echoed in the representations, particularly less so in Harper's Weekly, and we'll look at that, and more in Frank Leslie's and, and in other publications that had wider uh, readership, uh, the ubiquity of uh, strikes, uh, of labor organizing, is something that suddenly really the word suddenly is the right word to use, it starts appearing after the Civil War. This image is of the Lynn uh, Shoemaker strike, you know, in Lynn, Massachusetts, uh, in uh, 1860. I think this is one of the first images of a strike, let alone an image of, uh, you know, in the illustrated press of a strike. In this case, also, interestingly, uh, the women, the women shoe workers are, uh, this is a procession as part of the strike, of course, you know, processions being uh, particularly big in the 19th century, in the midst of a snowstorm, of 800 women operatives joining the strike with, you know, with banners, inscriptions, and, and they're carrying their tools and so on. This was a, you know, a double page you know, spread in, in Frank Leslie's. Now, on the, on the other hand, um, so there's in, increasingly coverage uh, of this new industrial world um, it received less attention in, for example, Harper's Weekly, but uh, there was occasional coverage of the new industrial world with decidedly picturesque quality. Now, this is uh, Bell Time, uh, in fact, by Winslow Homer, uh, and it was of the Washington Mills in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Uh, this is in um, 1868. Um, and um, it largely represented the argument that was less so in the image, but certainly that Harper's Weekly pressed in, in its description was that, that American uh, manufacturing was significantly superior to, in every way, to the British satanic mills at the time. So uh, as, as, as there's a poignancy in our eyes to this image, but at least to what Harper's Weekly was concerned in sort of representing was this is not an ideal factory, but it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's not... Uh, it's not a British factory. But by, um, by the early 1870s, the eight-hour movement, the demand for an eight-hour day, has begun to take, to take uh, uh, prominence as a, as a goal of the burgeoning labor movement. And the early rep images of the eight-hour day are, are fairly sympathetic. So this is one of a demonstration, a process, procession, procession of working men appearing, passing Cooper Institute, you know, Cooper Union down, down on 8th Street. The building is, in fact, you can barely see it here. Oh, actually, it appears better on this screen. Uh, that building's still there. You, mm -hmm. you, can, you can pass by and see basically this, the, the, same, the same building. Um, and the, the description in this case was, you know, was approving, saying it's an orderly and impressive occasion attended by the city's hardy sons of, of toil, as uh, Leslie's put it, 
And I commented on the culminating meeting at Cooper Institute that evening where, as they described it, stirring speeches in which the idea that honest labor should be conscientiously rewarded uh, formed the basis of the meeting. Um, Okay, uh, it's amazing what happens within one year. Uh, Within that one year, by 1872, so this is 1871, by 1872, uh, the AR movement coverage had changed drastically. Uh, they, they were now downright ungrateful. And by the way, even worse, they were, they were foreigners. Uh, the strike wave, there was a strike wave that involved more than 100,000 workers demanding uh, you know, the, um, the eight-hour day. It was the largest combined labor action to hit an American city up to that time. Um, and so then all of a sudden what we see here are um, foreign signs appearing among the pictured participants. Uh, this was uh, also called the eight-hour movement in Leslie's, and it was a procession of working men on strike in the Bowery, which is, of course, adjacent to uh, 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 the uh, Cooper Institute slash Cooper Union is on the Bowery, uh, which is Third Avenue becomes the Bowery, um, for those of you who haven't gone down, haven't gone down there. Um, and the way they described it is that... Um, Uh, It would be difficult to convince ourselves that those who appeared were fair representatives of the working men of the city. They certainly did not exhibit the manly bone and sinew of the land. Of the flags and banners displayed, there was but one of a demonstrative character, and that carried by the internationals. Bore the familiar threat, eight hours, peaceably if we can, forcibly if we must, as a must as a popular movement of the working men, the parade was a failure, which actually was not true. Uh, very many, with commendable good sense, refused to take part in it, fearing that greater complications would thereby be engendered. Uh, and at the same time, uh, there are more sensational images that appear again in the, I guess you could call it the men's pictorial press. Uh, this was the day's doings. This was uh, to not only make it clear what the message was called uh, the great strike, the seat. So this is the same, this is the same demonstration being depicted now in, uh, in the racier publication. Uh, it's called The Seed and Its Fruit, and this is the seed, and it's the, the conclave of the strikers, the beautiful international Judith Marx, who they claimed was Karl Marx's niece, although I have not been able to ascertain that, in, initiating a number of workmen as members of the secret order of the sun, which was supposed to be supposedly a secret society of basically terrorists who... Um, uh, who uh, were theoretically organizing violence against the, uh, uh, in support of the eight-hour movement. Uh, one of the things that I won't read all this long description, basically, you know, oh, they're completely enchanted, say she's exotic beauty, you know, um, you know, phrases that are suggesting she's Jewish, you know, and, and exotic. Oriental, I think, is, the ter- is one of the terms that they use. But also say, you know, she doesn't really understand the United States. She's bringing her European ideas to infect um, to infect the workers. Um, it may have served a purpose in Europe, as, as they said, or in the Dark Ages, uh, but was utterly opposed to the theory and practice of the city of New York in the 19th century. Now, similar sort of foreign subversion uh, was extensive uh, in Leslie's coverage uh, of the 1874-75 long strike in the anthracite coal fields of eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, 
which uh, the, the Reading Railroad was owned those mines, uh, and uh, the Working Men's Benevolent Association, which is the forerunner of the United Mine Workers, uh, was leading a strike. This is perhaps most uh, infamously remembered or notoriously remembered as the Molly Maguires, the, the, who uh, were uh, may or may not have have existed. Um, uh, Kevin Kenny at uh, at um, in Boston has written the definitive book on the Molly Maguires, I, I must say. And uh, and the point here, of course, is that the, the strike is eventually broken. But when it's presented at first in uh, in all of the in most of the publications is um, uh, is is in this way. This is the way uh, that this picture was described. Okay, it was called the Last Loaf, a scene in the coal region during one recent strike. Uh, it was done by Joseph Becker, who was the art supervisor, and Frank Leslie's Becker had grown up in that area of Pennsylvania, or at least he, he, claimed, he claimed he had, and he spent an extensive time in uh, there covering, as they, as they described it, the Molly Maguires, even though it was largely about just the mining families. And this is a description which probably Becker wrote. The father of the family, a strong, athletic man whose labor could bring means to support his family in comfort, sits idly by his cabin door, carousing with his boon companions, while his hard-worked wife and almost starving children gather around the oven as they place in the, in the last loaf, doubtful as to where the next supply of food may come from. In, in the distance are the collieries, lying idle for want of workmen such as he who thus allows his family to want. What a happy home this man might make for himself and family. A neat cot with smiling wife and happy children to greet his return from an honest day's labor might take the place of this dismal hovel and dejected family. Would he but work contentedly for a fair remuneration? Now, what's particularly interesting about this illustration is it is one of the rare instances where we have a response from readers. And one of those readers, and in fact, Leslie's reported several weeks later as they continued actually to sort of cover the, the, the strike, um, that they had, let's see, how did they put it? Um, uh, Leslie's wrote an editorial addressing the objections the publication had received about the coverage of the long strike in the wake of of Joseph Becker's pen and pencil pictures, Frank Leslie's, received a flurry of, as they put it, ill-spelled and violently abusive letters from the mining districts that, in the weekly's view, only confirmed the special artist depictions. Okay, so they're saying they're, they're doubling down on this. They're very Donald Trump, right? <laughs> Leslie's felt obliged, however, to address the more measured protest by Hugh McGarvey, who was listed as the president of the State Council of the Working Men's Benevolent Association. And they quoted him extensively. And McGarvey wrote, both the illustrations and the pen picture of the miners of Pennsylvania are unfair. The miners are not all drunkards. McGarvey went on to defend his members' morals and sobriety, stating that if they were given, quote, fair remuneration from their employers, they, quote, there would be no trouble. They would willingly work and make happy families and comfortable firesides. Concluding, McGarvey wrote, I was not surprised when I first saw such things in Harper's Weekly, 
But from Frank Leslie's Illustrated mm-hmm. newspaper, better things were expected. We respectfully solicit at your hands simple truth and justice for the miners. So, at least for me, uh, what this suggests, among other things, is that even in Schuylkill County, which was really remote um, then, uh, miners were reading the illustrated newspapers. And undoubtedly, they were not buy- purchasing individual copies, but the, mi- the union probably subscribed. But um, an indication, again, of, this, of the expanse, of the potential expanse of the readership of even publications that were relatively you know, expensive. Um, okay, let's see where we are. The, but perhaps the most start, startling contrast in coverage was with the unprecedented two-week nationwide strike in July, August, 1877. And I expect uh, both Shannon and Justin can mm-hmm. chime in at some point to ba- you know, based on the, the work that they're doing now. Uh, Harper's weekly coverage, which you see here, uh, tended to be characterized by distant panoramic views and murky-faced crowds. Uh, in this case, it also was claiming it was based on a photograph, which, of course, would have been impossible uh, at this period of time. Of course, uh, you know, the exposure time, not to mention the equipment. You, you would not be able, with the troops firing at you, I don't think you'd be standing there. Uh, it probably means that the photograph, uh, the, the buildings, that the location was probably what the photograph originally depicted. Um, the New York Daily Graphic, uh, which I think uh, Richard had showed you yesterday, uh, uh, which was uh, you know the first daily uh, illustrated newspaper, didn't last tremendously long. Um, it uh, its images tended not to be very detailed because they used the lithographic process for the for the illustrations and, and did them very very quickly. And they're often picturesque and grotesque. I was discussing with Justin yesterday. This he'll undoubtedly recognize the figure on the on the on the left middle there. Uh, again, you know, sort of the drunken hordes. Um, and as in the, the Daily Graphics uh, editorial was particularly revealing and saying, um, as one ed- editorial declared, the subjects of the strike uh, of the strike coverage could never be confused with those who read the Daily Graphic. Uh, they wrote. It is hardly worthwhile for the press of the leading cities to be giving advice to the rioters on the railroads, nor to be propounding lessons on good conduct which they will not heed. Those who are now in revolt against the constituted authorities in the states of the Union are not a class of newspaper readers, which will come as a surprise to most of the people um, who they're addressing. Uh, and it may explain some of the coverage of the New York Daily Graphic. Um, the distinctive coverage, um, this, is, uh, this is Frank Leslie's, uh, part of Frank Leslie's coverage. So this is uh, the Philadelphia, what this is, the description, basically the caption reads, the Philadelphia militia firing on the mob at the 28th Street crossing near the Union Depot of the Pennsylvania Railroad on, on Saturday um, afternoon. July 21st, 1877. Um, you won't have time to get into all these, as- you know, into all these uh, aspects, but I should say that this was the single most in the, in the two week or so national strike. This was the single uh, most violent incident where the, uh, basically, uh, the Pits- Pittsburgh uh, was united uh, in opposition to the Pennsylvania Railroad. Uh, so much so that the P- uh, Pittsburgh militia would not 
go out to uh, against the strikers and strikers and sympathizers. So militia was sent to Philadelphia from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh to suppress the the strike. There was uh, uh, they they were to protect the Pennsylvania rail yards. The um, the strikers uh, had a confrontation with the militia. The militia began firing into a huge crowd, as you can see here, of uh, men, women, and children, uh, and um, you know, kill, killing many, many people. Um, not to get lost in this, but this is a quintessential example of the sort of narratives I talked about the Illustrated Press too, because of course it's people throwing things at the militia, you know, confronting the militia in in the in the middle distance. The reaction as they're being fired upon. So you can see people are running away, and the hill. none of this could be instantaneous, right? So you see all all of the the narrative of the event itself um, in, in this one double page spread, which is worthy of um, you know of, of you know close inspection. Um, but what is particularly striking about this um, was. Readers, uh, another case of reader response, an unusual case of this. In this case, it was uh, from a uh, local newspaper, the P Pittsburgh Leader, which uh, I'll read just some of the quotation because I think it's um, it's both indicative about the differences differences between images and also again people's notion of how they appear when seeing themselves in the pictorial news in this period of time. Uh, as the leader wrote, uh, quote, it was evident that with the single exception of John Donahue, the artist of this city, special artist for Frank Leslie's newspaper, no artist was near enough to the, quote, mob, unquote, they assumed to depict to know what it really looks like. They represented as a wild and heterogeneous collection of rough men and virago women in every variety of costume, some with blouses, some in open shirts and bare arms, some with bandanas around their brows, and all with coarse, brutish features, exhibiting every phase of ignorance and malignity. This was a French mob derived from cuts by English artists in in old translated studies about the French Revolution. So the leader went on to say, the American mob is a different sort of body altogether. It has no varieties of costume, except such as indicate the sex and social condition of the wearers. American workmen do not wear the Paris blouse at all, nor are they sans culottes, nor do they wear turbans or handkerchiefs around their heads. They dress in the ordinary male costume of coat, vest, and pants, sometimes, however, going in their shirt sleeves. They are generally very well-looking men. Railroad employees especially have the reputation of being quite fine-looking and playing havoc with the hearts of country girls. <laughs> the Southside delegation, which marched up to the roundhouse uh, to help the strikers on that fatal Saturday evening, was led by a man in a good frock coat with a white necktie, and the men generally were well-clad, and many of them had their boots blacked. An American mob, especially when, as was the case at 28th Street, there were, the, there were mingled with the malcontents, large numbers of spectators and curiosity seekers. That is a pretty fair representation and appearance of the American people. So, 
Leslie didn't even comment on that. That was just the sort of endorsement. Of course, they were happy to, you know, against their rivals saying, well, this, you know, this is an example. But it's also an example, I think, when a local artist was there, there would also be a particularly strong um, uh, inclination to, you know, be accurate or certainly to, to get in the details as, uh, you know, as they, as they were there. Now, the res response to to the two weeks of mayhem was, in fact, uh, you know, pretty brutal also representationally. This one is particularly fascinating in the New York Daily Graphic, but not atypical. Uh, this one's called Waiting for the Reduction of the Union Army. I can see there that you have an interesting coalition. You have an American Indian, uh, what I'm assuming is a, a foreign work, well, uh, either an anarchist or a foreign worker. We certainly have a miner here, an, an Irish miner uh, was the third. And then I'm assuming it's a tramp with a gun because uh, of the, the nature of his, uh, you know, ragged wear. But this is the uh, this is the coalition that is threatening um, uh, that is threatening the republic at this period of time. Uh, and in many ways, what we do see then is a hiatus in the sort of coverage of the. Um, of the uh, of the labor movement this period of time, there's also a huge suppression of the labor movement. Many many uh, 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 unions, uh, uh, it, it, some unions become basically secret societies at this period for a period of time after the 1877 uh, railroad strike. Uh, and there's also much greater attention. The tension is shifted to the West Coast. Uh, in this case, this is not, of course, Leslie's. This is uh, the infamous San Francisco Wasp. Um, which was particularly, uh, which was supportive of the very racist, you know, anti-Chinese working men's uh, party in San Francisco. Uh, very violent and very, very, by the way, corrupt, um, uh, you know, organization. Uh, but in, in this case, of course, this is the WASP, uh, you know, celebrating the, um, uh, the attack on, on, uh, Chinese, on Chinese workers. Uh, the first blow... The first blow in the Chinese question. Um, the the other publications, uh, including Harper's Weekly as well as Frank Leslie's, uh, uh, tend to be, of course, more uh, hostile to the Working Men's Party for a range of reasons, but also also because of their violence and their. Um, it's not so much that they're sympathetic to the Chinese as they, of course, uh, you know, view. Uh, the xenophobia as, as, as part of this, you know, range of anarchists and, uh, and, uh, and communists at uh, this, uh, at that period of time. Um, now, coverage began to resume again uh, in the early 1880s with the resurgence of the labor movement and the rise of the Knights of Labor. Um, now, the, the Knights of Labor, um, uh, you know, it was the largest labor organization uh, at that period of time. Uh, and, you know, we can go into discussion, if you like, about the Knights of Labor. Uh, but it becomes a very standard subject of pictorial press, Le less so in Harper's Weekly, but certainly it is in Frank Leslie's. But for our purposes in particular, the interest, the, the, the language of struggle at this period of time is a shift a reference to slavery, but a shift in the attention with lots of problematic issues tied to that. And it's, it maybe it's hard, sort of hard to see here, but the, the large sign 
that you see here is it's slavery is written at the top and it says the past. And of course, that's chattel slavery on the left, right? Racial slavery on the right is it says the present. That's wage slavery. And that's what the the argument that is uh, being promulgated now by the labor movement is that wage slavery emerges as, as the oppressive institution taking the place of racial slavery, at least they argue, defeated in the Civil War. Now, the nice, uh, this is obviously not uh, an engraving or a, an, an illustration, but um, the, the, the notion, the, the Knights was uh, an, an inclusive organization, a segregated inclusive organization, okay? So it, uh, what I mean by that is had, it had white, they were called district assemblies. The, the local organizations in localities had, went, uh, had usually white um, uh, district assemblies, not to mention also male district assemblies versus female district assemblies. Now, what they also had, and this struggle now against capital, was reconciliation. Their notion of reconciliation, this is a group called the Blues and the Grays, uh, that pr pretty much tells you the story, right? Veterans of the Civil War are now arguing the fight, we need to unite because the fight is against uh, capitalism and monopoly, particularly the term, the term used, monopoly. Um, now, the, the, uh, having said that, uh, there are instances, again, and it's interesting to see what gets a lot of play in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the public arena and uh, what is emphasized in certain periods of time. This is the um, 1886 um, annual convention of the Knights of Labor in Richmond, Virginia. Okay, so this, uh, this was, and it is an image of Frank Farrell on the left, Colored delegate, as it's put in the title, of District Assembly 49, introducing uh, Terence Powderly, who was the Grand Master Workman of uh, the Knights of Labor. He was the, you know, the honcho. Now, what is interesting in this case is that Farrell was part of District uh, Assembly 49, which, unlike many other localities in New York City, unusually even for New York City, was integrated. And he was one of the representatives, and they went down to the hotels uh, to Richmond, and, of course, the hotel said... Farrell is not staying here, and they went crazy, and they they basically, you know, not only made a big to-do about it, began holding a protest. This embarrassed Powderly tremendously, and it it basically forced him to enunciate that the stance of the Knights of Labor was um, their uh, was uh, supported equality. Um, now, again, with, with this understanding that there is this, there is this tension between, and if, if you think that is a particularly tense situation in the West, just parenthetically, when Mexican-Americans form locals in the Knights of Labor, that makes the, lo the national uh, you know, organization quite uncomfortable as well. We, we do have some images of that, um, not here, it, wasn't, it wasn't, didn't reach the East. But uh, the, this is a tension that is, that is now being written about uh, to some extent uh, in, in terms of the Knights of Labor. Um, so what happened here is that uh, the... Um, now, the reason that I, I, I wanted to show this is, is uh, an image like this is 
uh, is particularly interesting in light of, of course, what is becoming at this period of time particularly popular image, which, which we discussed before. This is um, uh, one of the horrendous Dark Town series of prints that were popularly created by uh, Courier and Ives. And, uh, and uh, in fact, kept Courier and Ives afloat financially for you know, a good 20 years. They were done by Thomas Worth, who was the same uh, illustrator who did that image of the statue of the Statue of Emancipation that I showed earlier from the Centennial. Um, and so the the uh, so the the image of Frank Farrell in the uh, convention is is particularly striking in light of what is now you know becoming I would say predominant in in uh, you know the pictorial uh, in pictorial pe uh, record of the time. Um, uh, and the Darktown images are, aside from this, you know, buffoonish, horrendous quality, it was, it was, they were highly popular. Um, now, it also, but this is not to say that there aren't other exceptions to the rule. And I know emphasizing exceptions is particularly irritating. But I, <laughs> but I raise it because what it does suggest, however, that there's constituencies that some of these publications still have to address. It's something that Greg said yesterday about our notion that everything ends in 1877, right? Or you know, with the so-called compromise. But you can constantly see examples that are only explicable, to my mind, in understanding that some of these publications have a constituency that are still dedicated to some form of equality or to, for that matter, to the vote. So it's interesting to me, for example, that... Uh, Although Puck, uh, this is, of course, the exodusters, these African-Americans that, uh, in beginning in the late 70s, are leaving the South and moving to the West, right? They've you know, said they had it, they'll, 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 they'll you know, uh, take advantage of, of uh, opportunities for land and, and move to the West. And, for example, um, uh, this one, the, so the, the Puck cartoon, is, uh, which was a cover in uh, April 1879, which was, I would say, sympathetic to the figures in the background who are drawn in the usual fashion. And we have many different interpretations, which I've heard from everybody about the banjo. We can talk about that. <laughs> but, you know, are very much playing up the, it's called the New Exodus. And the, and the, um, and the caption reads, uh, of course, the figures are listed speaking. That is the, the African-American. And, and on the right is, is, is named Sambo, of course. Uh, and he says, now, boss, how you feel like it yourself? That is, he's having to do work for himself because labor is leaving the South. On the other hand, what is striking in the coverage, at least in terms of Leslie's, in, um, is, uh, and so that this, this very large illustration on the, on the bottom uh, is listed as remarkable exodus of Negroes from Louisiana and Mississippi, incidents of the arrival, support, and departure of the refugees at St. Louis, so they were going through St. Louis. This is the procession of refugees from the steamboat landing to the colored churches. Um, and what was played up, of course, was that, um, uh, that this migration of tens of thousands of, of African Americans from the lower Mississippi Valley to Kansas. Uh, and of course, aside from expressing surprise at the so-called exodusters numbers and determination to leave the South, 
And while they deplored the ramifications of the migration on the southern economy, uh, in this case, Leslie's acknowledged the migration as evidence of injustice and intimidation and accompanying renewed Democratic Party control you know, of the region. Uh, moreover, when Leslie's published the engravings in its April uh, 19th, 1879 issue, showing the arrival of black migrants in St. Louis, this, this panoramic illustration depicted an orderly procession of homesteaders instead of the chaos of fleeing refugees described in many press reports. So amidst caricatures and stereotypes and nostalgic visions of inequality, the exodusters were celebrated. Now we can get into lots of discussions about you know why were they celebrated? Why at the same at the same time do we see that people that that African Americans who remain in the South are not celebrated? At this now, what's happening? And I'm winding up here. The um, uh, you know to be sure the the use of racial stereotyping and uh, and and these somatic codes is in fact expanding. Uh, you could almost say it's becoming an equal opportunity uh, <coughs> employer. Uh, I mean, this image, which was an incident of the freight handler strike, um, uh, was called At Bay. It's an Italian laborer assailed by hoodlums, which are basically the, uh, the, these uh, uh, Italian labor was used in, in the freight handler strike, which was in the New York City docks, uh, to help break the strike. Um, but at the same time, what's, what is striking in this and many other images of these new immigrants who are arriving, this is, so this is in um, 1882, is that they are bringing foreign problems with us. This sounds so very familiar nowadays. Um, but, and, and if you didn't know that already, aside from the exotic costume, he's carrying a knife, you know, a shiv, which Italian immigrants are always pictured carrying, you know, some form of a knife. Um, and not only are the Italians here, this is where the first time you see also Jews being, uh, you know, Eastern European Jews. Uh, they bring disease with them, the whole gamut of problems. So uh, the foreign, so foreign physiognomies are reappearing again in, in, the, in the early 1880s and with the telltale signs of difference. This is particularly becomes prominent and in fact uh, really takes over in 1886, after the Haymarket, um, the so-called Haymarket riot, um, you know, this is um, again the eight-hour campaign uh, and a shooting at the McCormick Reaper Works during uh, these strikes. The, the Reaper Works were on the outskirts of Chicago. Was followed by a demonstration in Haymarket Square, where, uh, if you're from Chicago, this is you know common lore. Uh, a, a bomb was thrown. It was blamed on German anarchists. Um, and perhaps in, in, for our purposes, the most one aspect about this was this is the most reproduced image of the of the Haymarket. Again, to give an idea. You know, the wildly bearded anarchist and again foreign anarchist, foreign German was the way the way it was presented. But it's also instituting now physiognomy of of immigrants as a, a fairly common theme for a period for quite a period of time, so that. And it's intertwining now with the, uh, with the increased technology of photography so that uh, this image, and this comes out of the, the Haymarket. So this was part of the anarchist trials when they, the, the accused uh, German anarchists were uh, on trial and they were eventually executed, except for one of them who committed suicide. Um, this is uh, a scene at police headquarters in Chicago photographing a criminal. It is a 
standard, what's fascinating about this is number one, it's about now recording the, you know, the physic, the biological characteristics, you know, the, the physical characteristics by photography. And of course this is, you know, the Bertillion measurements of the head and the height. And this is where the mugshot, the police mugshot is instituted, but you see this every, uh, really everywhere. In fact, at this, in the same year, 1886, um, Thomas Burns, uh, the uh, infamous, uh, in our light, New York superintendent of police, uh, published Professional Criminals of America. And aside from having all, it's all made up of mug shops of, of different you know, immigrant uh, criminals, in quotation marks, that, um, and the frontispiece of that book was almost this exact same image, but done as a reenacted photograph against a completely phony backdrop and so on. And in fact, one of the earliest, it's been argued, pornographic films was of a woman being held down. Uh, it, it, it's practically online. I mean, you can find it anywhere. The Library of Congress has it. It's, it's completely um, you know, enacted. It's not a real, but a woman held down by police and struggling desperately as she's being photographed. So this becomes a sort of standard trope of, you know, not only foreignness, but of course, an archive as, as has been described of, of physiognomic features that would be reappearing. But that's in, that's a little later. <laughs> and we won't discuss that today. So I'm happy to have discussions. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Sure. Oh, sure. Yeah, no, that's, that's understandable. Um, that is, uh, it's, it's Leslie's and it's July 31st, uh, 1886. It's the cover. It's the cover illustration. Um, and, you know, there are lots of different versions of that. I'm sorry, can you just speak up a little? In the 70s, there was a wage slavery sentiment that, um, you know, racial slavery uh, the issues that labor is confronting at the time. So I just wanted to find out, um, were there any caricatures that you could discuss of the wage slave? Uh, no, it's a good question. I mean, it, uh, it's really more, by the way, in the 80s, what that's worth. But um, the tendency, and, and I haven't seen, you know, there's a lot of writing about this. So in other words, uh, the labor movement, there's a lot, a, a lot of, um, of uh, textual stuff. But um, that's why I, I showed that image of that sign, because it was, you know, you hear about it a lot, but I've rarely seen it depicted. Having said that, there's, there's so many pictures of, of, of um, destitution and want uh, in the middle of strikes, as well as, you know, just daily life, that in many ways you could argue, well, that becomes the picture of wage slavery. That's what, that's what they would argue. But in terms of a contrast saying, oh, this slavery was what we were fighting against before, and now we have a new form of slavery, is I haven't seen that, that contrast in any sort of diagramic way. Mm -hmm. Just one, one last sure. The Darktown trial is the image of the judge's trial. Mm -hmm. Can you provide a little bit of context of that particular? Of that particular? Of that particular image? Well, um, I can't. I can't get that particular. There, you know, there are hundreds of these. I mean, he did. Uh, Thomas Worth did this um, for quite a number of years, and it would be published weekly. 
Um, I, I mentioned to at, at one lunch, so it's only, only a few of you, that uh, there is one instance um, that Worth described mm -hmm. about a a response, a negative response to these, you know, stereotypes. Um, and and uh, it, it went something like this: what what he um, this is this is when he's he's an old man and he's uh, and he's. Uh, being interviewed, you know, as a celebrated, you know, uh, caricaturist, cartoonist, and so on. And uh, he said, uh, yeah, they, you know, there was one incident where uh, the, 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 when they were printed, uh, particularly in New York City, they would have, the, there would be crowds waiting for the latest edition, needless to say, there were mainly white crowds, right, waiting for the latest edition of Darktown, right? And what they tended to be, by the way, were paired prints. So there'd be one print of, let's say, a fire, a fire, a volunteer fire, black volunteer fire company. So they're coming to the rescue and the next day burn down the building. You know, and I was there always incompetent. They're always, you know, buffoonish um, and very, very sort of viciously drawn. Um, so uh, they would uh, they would distribute these. Uh, they would begin selling them in front of Courier Knives um, um main office, which was on Nassau Street downtown here in New York City. And he described an incident where at one of these um, um, publication events, uh, an African-American appeared, a well-dressed African-American appeared and started really, you know, protesting these disgusting um, images. And so the, they didn't like uh, him yelling and screaming. And they went and they got, as, as he said, thinking this was a very, very funny story, that they went and got this big German printer, you know, back in the print part, print shop, and to come out and intimidate him. And, and, have, and he ran away. And this was his story. But, you know, to my mind, it was yet another example that was useful for us to see that it's not like people are sitting there and saying, oh, this is, you know, never mind or anything like that. They're, this is upsetting, certainly to, you know, New York African-Americans, at least in this particular incident. Um, you can easily find these online. They're all over the place. The Museum of the City of New York, I know, has, has a collection um, because they were published in the tens of thousands. This was extremely, unfortunately, extremely popular. Yeah, we, we've been seeing these really heavily sentimentalized um, illustrations of the veteran coming home in the mid and late 1860s. Um, and this kind of ties in, I think, with, you know, I can't help but think of today's politics. Um, whereas, on the one hand, you have these middle class representations of veterans coming home in the 1860s, then in the 1870s, with the railroad, you have the, the tramp as a social menace, and this idea of um, a shiftless, dangerous kind of element, uh, you know, to, but to what extent do sort of middle-class audiences, or this uh, surely is a middle, this is a class and an ethnic thing, where's the, where's the disconnect between understanding that a lot of these so-called tramps are very likely displaced veterans? Um, and the sort of analogy, or the parallel today would be sort of these, you know, hyper-nationalistic support our troops, but at the same time condemn moochers and these people who live off the government, you know, 30, 40% of veteran, or homeless people being veterans, um, and then wanting to defund those social programs as yeah. well. Um, so I guess it's like, to what extent do they, you know, thinking about like, you know, the post-war period as a, as a as John, John Rambo's walking around, you know, <laughs> and they're, they're, they're veterans, but they're, they're also dangerous. Right. How can we, 
you know, factor in class and ethnic fears to, to sort of characterize them? Um, you know, I don't, I don't remember seeing, uh, you know, my, my knowledge of this is not encyclopedic, particularly this period of time on the tramp is such a ubiquitous figure, um, seeing images uh, that immediately say veteran. But there's lots of interviews uh, in, in a range of, of, of the press that period of time where they say, I was a veteran, you know, I, uh, I never thought I would have to you know, beg. Uh, I've had to leave my family and you know travel the the, the country in a similar fashion. It's, it's uh, to just extend this slightly. You'd also hear this on occasion in strikes in the '80s, where people. This is particularly true of, but not entirely. Uh, only union on the union side. People said, "I you know I fought for my country, and I thought you know." the Republic would be better. And now I'm, you know, I'm starving or I'm, I have to fight. I mean, there's a guy literally, I think I'm trying to remember which strike it was where, I mean, he's got a gun in his hand. They're shooting back and forth, you know, with, and remember the other aspect about, uh, particularly as Justin and Shannon will, will agree, uh, you know, the federal troops are used to suppress that strike. Uh, and, um, among, among, as well as local forces. And so there is, you do hear the, you know, these voices that are saying that, you know, uh, this is not what I fought for. And I, you know, I never expected that, but I, it's an, that's an interesting question that I, it is worth sort of keeping an eye out for. I, I suspect there'll be some, depending on, of course, the publication, because so much of the tramp, unlike other indigent people is presented as a menace. I mean, this is, the, the tramp is one of the one of the things that's going to destroy America as it is now. This you know the wandering the wandering poor because he's not only poor he's supposed to be obviously carrying anarchy with him. Josh, I'm wondering with the Illustrated Press clearly emphasizing the foreignness of uh, participants in labor and clearly typing them with in certain ways facial features etc. Right, so we know that. We know that, especially for Irish Americans, that a lot of that is coming from actually the English illustrated press, and they're sort of adopting some of the same techniques. But I'm wondering, are the um, the illustrators in general are they looking at how the labor movement is represented in European publications? Hmm. Because you know, European publications they, they can't emphasize the foreignness their work, right? <laughs> so that, and, and well, those Americans. Yeah. Especially because it seems like, for right. part, a few of the, the, the illustrators are proud of immigrants themselves. Yeah. They have the experience in the right. press, right? Yeah. So, you know, if you emphasize them being Frenchmen, Poles, and Germans, right, then what are the French, <laughs> Germans, and Poles, are they blaming? Is there like a sort of a class, a more sort of strict class element to it? Or sort of being like, you know, a, understanding of it, and also I'm curious to see if there is any sort of crossover between the two yeah. sides, right, and, and how that works. Well, you know, the um, uh, it's a good question. I uh, the one the funny part the the Irish still in terms of you know the British press are still going to you know the bombing campaigns uh, you know later in the 19th century are going to be producing lots of images and there are some that come over but it, it's striking there is a class element I think in that for example when Finian's 
are presented, who tend to be, you know, more middle class or um, they're very stalwart in their. They're also when they have the plot to, you know, invade Canada. Everybody, you know, the American press is fine with that. <laughs> they they don't have a problem with that. Um, so there's a class element to what strike um, the the last really strong. I'm, I'm hesitant to say this, but the, uh, the last really strong caricaturing of Irish that in that I've seen is around the 1871 uh, Orange Riot, which is when uh, uh, Irish Catholics attack um, uh, a, uh, a march in, uh, on Fifth Avenue, uh, and um, there it's an attack on uh, Irish Protestants. This is a celebration of is it the Battle of the Boyne, I think. Yeah. Uh, and um, the uh, the the, the, um, the marches are being protected by troops who fire wildly into the crowd. Mm-hmm. Now, that's interesting in itself because before they fire, images of the Irish who are protesting, Irish Catholics, are very stereotypes. Before they're shot, once they're killed because it was so wildly, they fought, they shot everybody. You know, it was like you know, uh, the troops. Uh, they suddenly lose their physiognomy. But now, having said that, and I'm, I'm not, I know I'm not specifically addressing your question, but it, it sparked in my mind something that's an, um, an interesting question about what's going on. <clears throat> what's striking to me is, you know, there's, there, there is a dis- distinguishing aspect that by this point in time, I think, between, although I see it often merging together, <laughs> between cartoons and illustration or the intentions of that. So one of the, I wasn't planning to show this tomorrow, I won't be able to dig it up, but what's striking to me in many cases is that there'll be pictures, for example, of uh, the strikers during the Pullman strike, for example, or um, the, um, mainly Pullman strike that comes to mind, so it's 1895. And they are, now, this is the end of wood engraving, this point it's really moved into half tones, so these are sketches, but like Frederick Remington, you know, the, the artist of the American West, was dispatched, for example, to cover uh, the Pullman strike and did, and did illustrations, and in his pictures of strikers battling federal troops. Now, aside from the fact that they're bearded, uh, you wouldn't immediately say physiognomy, but they are surrounded by descriptions, including the, those by Remington, saying they're hordes of Pollocks and every sort of unspeakable type. And, and I raise that because, and I'll, I tr- if I can find out, I'll, I'll show it to you tomorrow, because there are moments what I, what, that I think in many ways are more sinister and also very much bespeak the Jim Crow period of images of African-Americans that are not stereotyped, but they're being presented as criminals now. Mm-hmm. So in other words, the Wilmington strike, I'll show it to you tomorrow if I can find it, Image images. These are images uh, like in Scribner's, uh, you know, respectable monthlies. It's not sensational monthlies that will show the Wilmington strike, where of course African Americans were victims, as the perpetrators. And the cover of Scribner's will have them carrying guns. In a similar way, we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll see that. So, to my mind, that's sort of another aspect about this. We tend also to look at this at the what we call the stereotyping or the the. Um, Typing, visual typing, and but what happens when we start, you know, getting images that, for all intents and purposes, are are using different coding at this point? Um, the other thing, just 
to complicate things further, but to get back to the cartoons that I was saying before, there's also the language. What's striking to me is how much, in many cases, these the physiognomic and the stereotyping moves over to explicitly the cartoons. And by the way, you know, it becomes even more virulent. I mean, the, and I'll show some of these tomorrow because I think this is the nadir. The turn of the century is the you know the nadir of um, of the depiction of race and 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 ethnicity, but particularly race, uh, and uh, the, it's all it's in it's in cartoons, it's in comic strips, it's in animation. By the way, although it's very hard to find those particular ones, um, and it, it and it continues in even. Um, I wouldn't say benevolent, but um, their comic strips, you may all not know, but when I was a kid, they were still around. Um, uh, for example, Bringing Up, was it called Bringing Up Father? Um, uh, where the characters, uh, Jiggs and Maggie, are Irish immigrants who win the Irish sweepstakes. And most of, and so now they wear you know, high tops, you know, high hats and tails, and they live in a mansion and so on. But she's still beating him with a rolling pin, and he's still drunk all the time. And in the 1950s and 60s, that, this comic strip was still running. And that begins in you know, the early 20th century. I think it begins, in, in, it begins before 1920. But I, I raise this because, it, 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 if anything, you, you, it's very hard not to fall over all of this stuff all the time. It is really um, ubiquitous, but it's now entered to this world of real entertainment. I mean, it's not, you know, it's, it's not simply, it's, it's not only, you know, news commentary and all that. It's just simply, you know, str you know straight entertainment. So I, I sort of gave you a complicated answer, not answering your question. But I think that that, I, I don't think, I think that the Irish are the only ones that I've really come across, you know, like in the, you know, foreign press that, that, would, uh, that would cover that. For what it's worth, I've seen the argument made that the is the color tech for Homer Simpson. <laughs> okay, right. I, I can see that. <laughs> yes. Um, it's, such, it's interesting with a lot of these images, particularly uh, ones surrounding violence, but using violence as the kind of, uh, I guess, marker for how these uh, theoreticals are understanding historical movement, which is interesting because it's almost implicitly. Uh, Marxist on a certain level, um, which is to say that you know, there's some sort of violence taking place between classes that's propelling the news and the, therefore history forward. Um, but the thing that I keep coming back to is throughout so much of these images, the, the last you know seven, ten days, uh, it's all contested masculinity and racialized masculinity. And you know, if you go back to like women's labor history of this period, it's like man, 25, 50% of working, working class women are working out of the house. There's tons of female-headed households in places like Lawrence, where like women are living with other women and raising children. The men are all dead from accidents, or they're dead from the war, or they're, they're, they've left. Um, and so there's just, there, there, I know from in text, there's tons of narratives about women in public space, women in labor, and women doing uh, you know, uh, political activism that's way outside even the, the boundaries of domestic space. To what extent, I guess I'm wondering, do, does any of this sort of, um, Women beyond domesticity appear in public space when they periodicals. Do the periodical editors themselves understand their audience mainly to be male? Um, does it show up in other forms? Is, is domesticity the main kind of fulcrum or lever for representations of gender uh, during this time? 
Uh, particularly starting in the 80s, um, the, and actually there's a, a lot about the exploitation of working women. Um, and that's true of Leslie's, it's true of Harper's Weekly, it's also true of the sensational press, because they obviously have a slight twist on it as well. Particularly, for example, clothing workers is, is one that comes particularly to mind. And you'll see the same, <coughs> excuse me, you'll see the same sort of images of, you know, the hulking boss, uh, you know, uh, you know um, exploiting in, in one way or another. Um, I can think of quite a number of them. There are also occasional images, and that's, uh, this is my fault for not including it, of um, um, women in the street. Uh, I mean, there's lots of images of mixed crowds and, women, you know, women in the street, lots, lots of different things. There's a really wonderful one. Um, that was in Frank Leslie's. I'm sorry, it had nothing to do with labor, but uh, it's called Walking the Gauntlet. And it is a woman walking past a hotel in New York City with a line of men ogling her. And she's just looking straight ahead. Um, you've seen it. I mean, we can't help believing that it wasn't quoted, you know, in many different photographs that we've seen in a similar sort of way. Um, and there's so that there, you know, there, there definitely, there definitely is a presence, and there's also images of women's strikes. Not, not a huge number that I've come across, but obviously this is going to change drastically, you know, by the turn of the century, and and um, and particularly with um, the uh, illustrations in the daily newspaper, which really don't start until the 1890s. Um, but there are, I, I certainly remember in Leslie's, um, and. Uh, there are a number of images of uh, women striking. Um, uh, one I, uh, I remember in particular because uh, it, what's, what the women are outside picketing, and then there's a little uh, vignette um, in the left-hand corner where all the men, the, the heads of the union are all men, and they're busy negotiating you know, while the women are, st are standing outside. Um, I could give you those, those citations, but they're... they're you know, this is, it's, I'm not saying that it, they're, you know, again, wildly commonplace, but this has become, women in the street are, for some time, have been included there. The, you know, the, the interesting question here is, are they in danger when they're in the street? Because there's, you know, an indication as that walking the gauntlet, you know, suggests that it's, you know, hell out there. And, you know, a respectable woman has got to, you know, you know, be careful. But they're there. I just, I, I wanted to not keep this going for two hours, so I didn't include it. Um, I, I can speak to the 76th Centennial Exhibition. Mm -hmm. There was actually a women's pavilion. Right. Um, and there are lots of really great images of the women organizers of that pavilion sitting out with architectural plans, you know, scheming about the organization. And there were some women sculptors and artists involved, too. So, yeah, there were lots of images surrounding that, which I think when the Frank Leslie's um, illustrated that accompany the yeah. Centennial. Yeah, they, they, um, Mrs. Frank Leslie, I should have also added, that Leslie dies in 1880. When he's bankrupt, he dies. And um, his wife, who takes the name legally Mrs. Frank Leslie, um, takes over and she actually brings it back. Um, she's a, she's, um, well, she's a, uh, let me see, a feminist royalist. She, she, um, uh, she's a big supporter of the of the women's movement. In fact, she leaves her fortune to uh, the suffrage movement. But it's also almost quintessentially the issues that existed in the suffrage movement involving class. She wouldn't hang out with any poor, you know, poor women. But um, 
But I raise that because it's she becomes very anti-strike, for example, anti-union. you know, um, union. But I raise that because I have no doubt that, for example, the, the sole, at least credited, illustrator who was a woman, this Georgina Davis, was pretty much hired by her and was her sort of, you know, protege. So um, that is either an indication that there was an impact or there may not have been. It's hard, it's hard to judge. But I, I can't help thinking that. I know that, for example, she got rid of all the sensational um, magazines that, that had been in the publishing house, for example. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that uh, it seems like there is a conceit on the part of the publishers that their images were appealing to some sort of higher class of Americans, but yet the miners in Pennsylvania kind of pushed back when they were looking at this and we think we had it wrong. So, I mean, to what extent was it is it true that people consuming these images were uh, you know, different from, say, the workers being depicted, or were the workers being depicted also you know, all over the place, not just in the mines of Pennsylvania, but in, in the cities and other ways, you know, looking at these and consuming them? And if they were, uh, were they pushing back also, uh, particularly on, on um, say, this idea that they were this foreign radical movement that wasn't really American? Well, you know, one of the th things that, of course, is fr frustrating is that there were no letters columns <laughs> or um, and um, as far as uh, any of us have been able to find there, you know, the archives are barely there uh, in terms of in terms of these publications. Um, so there's these serendipitous findings when, you know, the you know, like Hugh McGarvey, you know, and uh, the Workings Benevolent Association guy was writing and so on. There are also occasions where there are, um, I may have mentioned this also in one of the lunches, that um, I think it was the Irish world, but I'm not sure, there, where there have been images, for example, when the coverage was so rough about the 1871 uh, Orange Riot. Um, the Irish world, I think it was the Irish world, had a, a very... Um, complicated if you know not particularly um, well reproduced because uh, they didn't have the, the cash uh, image of all of the different types of New York City publishers and uh, you know really drawn in a grotesque fashion as you know as as being you know it was a pushback in terms of you know that image you know th that those images um, but I, I think that um, you know these are all impressionistic but the different publications really have different, I mean, it is a very, the literary market in the 19th century is very directed to specific readers. And most of these publishing houses, uh, different publications are, are obviously directed to different readers. Now, um, certain publications like the, 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 uh, the two weekly, uh, well, Frank Leslie's Illustrated newspaper is probably the widest range of readers that Leslie's covers, and we do have indications, um, as you know, as I mentioned, that that readership is much wider than most of his other publications, and certainly much wider than Harper's Weekly. That we do have indications that that uh, you know, as I said earlier, miners are reading it. We know that you know, small businessmen are reading, and we know that you know, wealthy businessmen are reading. We also have indications that you know women women are, are are a significant part of at least the weekly newspaper as well as of course the women's publications. Harper's Weekly is is clearly, um, uh, although very successful, much much narrower 
uh, in terms of even what they're directing toward. As I, I think I mentioned at one of the lunches, we do have different, you know, again, these are serendipitous in finding them. There are probably many stories, but the, the memoirs of this William Rogers, who was a Harper's Weekly illustrator, um, called a world, a world Worthwhile, and he tells a story when he was doing, you know, early on when he was an illustrator, going to a mining disaster, and the priest will not talk to him in the town in Pennsylvania because they hate Harper's Weekly because of the way they draw miners and, and Irish people. So you get those sort of you know, pushbacks that you hear. Now, you know, obviously, uh, that'll, Harper's Weekly will be you know, less concerned about that. But I, I think there's, and, and they also are able to read, as I may have said earlier, because of the nature of the subscriptions, the, the, su these associational subscriptions are a major way that these publications survive. Remember, this is before the mass magazines when they have tons of uh, uh, ads. By the time you reach the 1890s, you know, McClure's, Muncie's, you know, Ladies Home Journal, there, there are... These are mass market magazines that don't rely on subscription. At the same time, I would argue, they don't rely on having to satisfy the many different people that, that are reading. So, um, so that in terms of the associational subscriptions, there are a lot of people who could never afford to buy them who are able to see them in, you know, in the different associations belong to. And, and if the United States is anything, it's the people are involved in different types of associations, whether it's everything from, you know, a union to a church. I mean, there's a lot of this, this material that's out there, and it's also out, you know, publicly in the streets of news dealers. So that's where we are. Um, I, I think that we can be more confident that many more people saw these images I don't agree with Rich Weston. I don't think that these, that these publications were as rare. And there's another reason why we're able to find so many Frank Leslie's and Harper's Weekly still. They're, they're, uh, they are around. They, you, know, you still can buy them relatively cheaply off, off eBay, which is not, you know, is not the case in, in, in some of these other publications. Okay, thanks. Thanks a lot. Thank you.